It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. Karen Soderholm is a teacher and artist whose love of education and textiles has led her on a wild adventure around the world. Her love of textiles is rooted in family tradition and the joy found in materials and process. Her artwork has been displayed in university and private galleries in the U.S., Korea, and China. A special thank you to my friend and fellow podcaster, Sue Donaldson, the host of Welcome Heart, Living a Legacy Life podcast, for connecting me with Karin. Karin, thank you so, so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life. Thank you, Paula. It's really nice to be here. I'm really honored that you asked me to join you today. I am looking forward to this. I am so thankful to Sue Donaldson for connecting me with you. Now, how do you know Sue? Well, I know Sue from my childhood. I grew up in the central coast of California, and Sue was part of the church community that I was part of when I was a kid. So I've known her a long time, and we haven't lived in the same community in a long time either, but we've stayed connected on social media. Nice. She must have seen one of your quilts and it made her think of me. I think so. Yeah. Let's jump back to where were you born and raised? Well, there's actually two answers to that question. I was born in Southern Illinois, but I was raised in the central coast of California and lived there until I was 16. Growing up on the coast of California was just an awesome place to be a kid. Lots of access to the beach and great weather. And I didn't realize when I was a kid that not everybody just had direct outdoor access from their classrooms at their schools. I didn't realize that in other parts of the country, you had to be in hallways because your buildings had to be heated. You know, like I just didn't realize any of that stuff as a kid. So it was a really nice place to grow up. It was near family too, which was nice. I hadn't really thought about that, but I grew up in Sonoma County. And yeah, yeah, we didn't have the hallways. Yeah, no. And it was so normal to just be able to like be inside, outside, inside, outside. That was part of my childhood at home, at school, everywhere was inside, outside. Although those hallways would have been nice on the rainy days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In my school, we did have like a covering, like a covered hallway outside the classroom door. But that's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a special childhood memory? Yes, I have a few. When I was a kid and we lived in Central California, we were very close to my grandparents. And my grandfather was a baker. He was retired by the time I knew him, but he was a baker and he made all of our birthday cakes and things. So one of the things that I really loved about being close to them as a kid was just the experience of being in the kitchen with him, decorating cakes, helping him bake cakes. There was like a lot of activity in the kitchen. I bet you learned some fancy tricks from him to make cakes. Did I retain that information? Not really. Like it's more of a experiential or like a feeling memory than a like 
skill memory. <laughs> oh, how fun though. Can you tell us about your employment? Yes. When I was studying as an undergrad, I had always loved being an artist. Like from the time I was a kid, I was just drawn to materials. Like I just always wanted to be making something. I sometimes say that textiles were my first love. I just always was drawn to those kinds of materials, fabrics, yarns from the time I was really little. And as I was sort of growing into adulthood, I knew I wanted to do something with that, but I didn't really know what. And I didn't really have exposure to people who were working as artists. So I didn't really know how to combine those things, how to combine being a creative person and also someone who had an occupation. I just didn't have access to that information. But I did know that there were educators who worked in art, and I did know that was a real job. So when I was studying in undergrad, I decided to study art education. So I studied to be a teacher, and I have worked now as a teacher in various capacities for about 20 years. And I've worked with students who are little and adults and taught informal positions. I teach workshops and I teach individuals how to sew. I've done a lot of things within the world of education and I am grateful for mostly for the people that I have met through that occupation. Although at this point in my life as a sort of mid-career and I'm trying to pivot out of education and really wishing that I had had exposure to other creative careers earlier. Because now as an adult, I know a lot more about what the options can be for me. And it is a little bit harder to change mid-career. It is, but it's exciting too. It is. I feel more empowered now than I did 20 years ago to make change for myself. So I'm glad to be in this position, even though I do look back and wish oh, I could have been an architect for the last 20 years, or I could have been a working artist, a community artist developer for the last 20 years. There's part of me that looks back and says, oh, I could have been doing a lot of these things. And then the other part of me is like, oh, but look what I now can do because I have 20 years of experience working with people, working as a creative, even if it wasn't my full-time occupation. And I do feel very empowered to be making a switch. Mm-hmm. I laugh because even though my husband and I, uh, he's reached retirement age and I'm about there, we still are feeling like, what do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> yes, totally. The way that I think about it is I don't ever want to stop working. I don't ever see myself not being active in my hours of the day and not connecting with people and not out in my community. And I always want to be doing that right now. It's more about because of the place I'm in, in my work journey, I still need to be thinking about how to support myself and build my future rather than just working purely for the joy of it, which I always hope I am working for the joy of it. But I have to also be realistic. right now. <laughs> yes. Being a teacher I think I saw that you have gotten to go 
to a lot of really neat places. Can you share something about that? Yeah, absolutely. So after I finished my undergrad degree, I was just dipping my toe in the world of textiles. When I was a senior, there was a loom in the senior like working loft and I saw it there and I was like, you know, I think that makes fabric. <laughs> so I chatted with my advisor. We were a pretty small art department and he said, yeah, if you can figure out how to use it, absolutely you can use it. So I found a class I could take that taught me how to weave and then spent my senior year weaving and loved it. Then I graduated and then I was like, I probably should get a job. So I moved back to Denver, which is where I live now. And I got my first teaching job and I really had loved weaving. And I'd also studied painting, but I didn't have any space to do either of those things in my teeny tiny 22-year-old apartment. That was actually my first connection to making quilts or one of my first connections to making quilts was because that was something I could do in my small space. And because I started making quilts, I was like, really, there is something here for me. Like I love weaving. I love making quilts. I love sewing. And I started to just investigate a little bit more artists that were using textile materials. It's like, there's got to be something else here. And so I decided to continue my studies and I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. And so I moved across country. I packed everything into my Subaru wagon, drove across the country by myself, arrived in Savannah like middle of the night after three days of driving and started out working as a grad student there and eventually worked for the school for a while. But while I was there in Savannah, I also worked with varying community organizations in art education. I worked with the museum as a museum educator, and I traveled to senior centers and community centers around the city and led workshops on behalf of the museum. And I also worked with the community arts summer camp. So I saw a lot of kids. I taught two-dimensional design and collage and simple sewing and things like that to community kids throughout the summers that I was there. I studied in the fibers department, which was really a wonderful place to study. And through my connections with the university, I thought I was going to stay there for a long time. Like I loved being in Savannah. I was like, just charmed my socks off and like, yeah, I could live here. I love this. Like back by the ocean again, different coast, but by the ocean. But it turns out God had other plans for me. An opportunity was just like set in my lap to move to Korea to work in a textile design program at a university in a city called Daegu, which is kind of in the center of the peninsula. We're talking South Korea here. I was not looking for that. I was pretty content to stay in Savannah, or I thought I had built a community there. I have both like friends and colleagues. And, and then all of a sudden I was flying to Korea for an interview and then all of a sudden I was being offered this position that was like kind of a dream job for me. So the time between when I went out there for my initial interview and the time that I moved was three months. And in between there, I finished my graduate thesis, had my exhibition, got all of the paperwork signed off, moved out of my house, got rid of all my stuff and moved across the world. And... <laughs> It was a whirlwind of those three months and I've been home or home, home is relative, I guess. I've been back in the United States for 10 years now 
which seems like not very long. But I lived in Korea for four years and taught at the university. The university was called Gemyang University. I taught in a craft design program. So my students study textiles, ceramics, and metal arts. And really, I it's one of my favorite like roles I've ever had as an artist and educator. I taught in English, which was a challenge for my students because they were all native Korean speakers. But we found mutual connection and like love through the materials that we shared. So yes, we couldn't speak always really great with each other, but we could connect about the materials that we used and the processes that we were doing together. It really reinforced for me the way that textiles are intertwined with humanity. And does it really matter what side of the world that you are on? Textiles are a shared language. So yeah, that was probably my favorite position that I've ever had. It had to come to an end. Well, it didn't actually have to come to an end. I decided that it was time for me to return to the States because I had not to renew my contract and then returned back to Denver, where a lot of my family is now and have been here since. And I've worked in public education here in Denver. And also now I teach at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design, also here in Denver. I'm curious. Since you taught in English, you didn't have to speak Korean, but what about getting your groceries and daily living? Yeah, I did have to learn some Korean. So where Daegu is, Daegu is in the middle of the country and it is more isolated than some of the other larger cities in South Korea. There are still are a lot of people who speak English, but a lot of people who really don't. So I had to learn some language. The entire time I was there, I was taking language classes. And the woman who ran the market that was on the first floor of my apartment building, she was my first Korean teacher. Not because I asked her, but because she saw that I needed some help. <laughs> and so I lived in like a giant high-rise apartment building on the 18th floor. On the first floor of our apartment building was a bunch of different stores, including a convenience store. And she sold everything from vegetables to plumbing pipes. She had everything there. And she was always there. And fun fact about me, I love ice cream. And she also sold ice cream bars, you know, like on a stick or in a cone or something. So often as I was coming home, I would stop there and grab myself an ice cream before I went up the elevator to my apartment, which she thought was hilarious because I ate ice cream, didn't matter if it was summer or winter all the time. But she first started by teaching me just the names of the coins and the money. So that was like the first thing. Every time I came in, she would tell me how much it cost and then I would pay her and she would give me the change and we would practice the names of the numbers and the names of the coins themselves. She really helped me a lot to start to learn just even basic words so that I could do some buying of the things I needed. And then I also had a few really gracious colleagues who helped me. The woman who was the chair of my department, she was my kind of liaison and she worked really hard to develop her language so that we could speak more clearly with each other. And then I also had another colleague who didn't teach in my department, but was in the fine arts school. And he took me and another faculty who was from Czech Republic sort of under his wing and 
he helped us get all the things that we needed to be set up, like to get a phone and make sure that we could pay our bills and all of those like logistical things. He was our translator at the beginning to get all that stuff set up. So I had a few really wonderful people who assisted me along the way. And I learned very quickly how to communicate without spoken language, which you'd think that's like, duh, but there are so many ways that you can communicate through body language when you don't have the right language. (laughs) You can figure out how to get what you need. And also, if other people are willing to engage that way with you, you can understand quite a bit about what somebody else needs or wants or is saying too, even without spoken language. Not easy though. No, but exciting. (laughs) Really fun. (laughs) And I didn't know what to expect. So a dream of mine had always been to live outside of the U.S. I didn't know the word wanderlust when I was young, but I had sort of that feeling of the world is big and I want to see it. And I I was wondering, like, how can I do this? Like, how do I figure out how to not live somewhere else forever, but go and live someplace and not only vacation or travel for a week or so? I had no idea how it was ever going to happen. And then this opportunity was given to me. Like, it really felt like it was dropped in my lap. All I had to do was say yes. And it was a beautiful reminder to me about the way that my creator takes care of me and really knows the desires of my heart. That's exciting. Real exciting. (laughs) Now, did I say something about you doing art shows? Oh, yeah. I would love to talk about that. I work mostly as an artist. So the work that I make is sort of a bridge between visual art and fine crafted objects. And so I find spaces to share my art in a variety of ways. Sometimes I make art that goes on the wall that really is just visual art. And other times I make art that is meant to be used, that takes form over your body, or is an object that can be utilized in some way. And I work in the area where I live here in the Denver, we call it like the front range, so up and down edge of the mountains. I work with an artist collective called Christos Collective, and we curate exhibitions together and share our work in a variety of venues up and down the front range. Sometimes we display and share our work within churches. Sometimes we do it within galleries. Sometimes we do it within other public spaces. And and the work that I do is always textile-based. So sometimes it looks like it is a quote-unquote quilt. Sometimes it looks like it's a painting that's done with embroidery. Sometimes it looks more like paper collage, but it's done with fabric. So my work takes a variety of forms and I show it in a variety of different ways through the collective and then also independently. I share my work in markets. My favorite is when they're inside because I don't like setting up for the outdoor markets. At first I thought it was kind of an adventure. I was like, oh, it's so great. It's outside. I love being outside. It's going to be so great. And Yes, it is so great. And also the weather sometimes is really prohibitive and working in textiles, I don't want my things to get wet unless I want to launder them. <laughs> like I don't want them. So I prefer an indoor market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Karen, is there anything else about your family that you would like to share? Well, I really love the family that I 
app. And I have a very eclectic family. I have a wonderful family of origin. And I have built a very broad web of interconnected friends and family as an adult. That when I think about the family that I have, I don't have children. I don't have a like insular family, but I have a family that is wide and broad and connected by lots of time and space. I feel really privileged to have the people that I have that I get to call family. That's so nice. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you had the opportunity to talk to people in the future, to let them know who you were, what would you want people to know about you? I would want people to recognize that I have been driven to make decisions in my life based on deep, like soul calling. And yet I've also really struggled to connect that deep soul calling with the expectations of the society that I've lived in. So I hope that they will see me as brave. I hope that they would know that I am very deeply loved by the people in my life and deeply loving in return. And even though it has taken me a little while to come back to my sort of deep soul calling, I would like to encourage them that it's never too late. And I think that's like what we sort of talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah, it's never too late to return to where you feel like you need to be. That's a deep thought to really sit and think about. So, yeah. Thanks for letting me share it. Mm-hmm. Being an artist, besides quilting, are there other crafts that you do or have done? I thought you'd never ask, Paula. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Yeah, so, okay. I really like to do all kinds of things with my hands. I feel like such a good connection between like the inner workings of myself and the workings of my hands. Like there's just like a direct connection. So really, if there's anything that somebody wanted to teach me or I see that they're doing, I want to try it. I love to do embroidery. I make most of my own clothing and love to sew garments. I have dabbled in jewelry and paper collage and knitting and crochet and weaving and fabric dyeing. I love to do fabric dyeing. So a lot of different things. And I'm constantly inspired by people who are creating and trying new things. I also think it's important that I calm down a little bit too. I think one of the things I'm finding myself called to is going deep with materials and processes rather than sort of dabbling in a lot of things, which is what I have sort of done in the past, because I just like it all. But now I'm thinking like, oh, how can I go deep and not just learn about how people have done this particular craft or this particular process in the past, but what does that mean for future too? Like there's a sense within the world of quilting that there are things to be learned from people who have been quilting for the ages past and also How can we take those traditions and what can we do to innovate also? And you 
only get to that place of innovation when you go deep into the materials and processes. You mentioned the fabric dyeing. And with that, do you have a garden where you grow <laughs> what you want to dye with? Why, yes, I do. <laughs> and actually, I love the world of natural dye. And yet it is sort of elusive to me. I learned dye techniques with synthetic chemical dyes, which are relatively straightforward and predictable. Actually, one of my favorite quilt collections I made was a collection of that I called the dye pot quilts, where I took a variety of different fabrics, put them in the same dye pot. I was using chemical dyes. And then, you know, you take those different fabrics out of the same pot and you have this wonderful monochromatic spectrum of different variations of that color, which I love. And they made beautiful quilts. But I really want to learn how to be a natural dyer because that works with my design ethics these days of working with what I have, working with local materials, working with the land. I love to garden. In the years that I've been back in Denver after my time in Korea, I have started to garden and I grow a lot of food and then I've evolved into plants. And I am really good at making beige currently, yellow, browns, beiges. I'm really good at that. Part of it is that that's some of the plants that yarrow or marigold, like those are colors that are from plants that grow locally and grow easily in my backyard. But there's a lot more. And I really like color. Like I love color and I don't want to only make beige color. So I have recently enrolled in a class and I'm hoping going to help me learn a lot more about how to produce a wider spectrum of color and make it so that the things align that I want to align, like my design ethics of wanting to use things that are nearby and naturally based and also colorfully based, like all those things will work together. I'm hoping if I could tell you the number of books that I have on my bookshelf that are about natural dyes, it's extensive. So I've read the books. I've done a lot of experimenting and I'm just in this place of kind of frustration of I've done a lot of experimenting. I would really hope for better quote unquote success at this point, like better colors. And I'm not getting it and I don't know exactly what I'm doing. So this course, hopefully is going to change my relationship with natural dyes and make it more symbiotic than it has been. That's so cool. Well, I had to ask about the gardening, but also are there other hobbies that you do? Gardening is probably my biggest hobby. One of my sisters just got me a sticker the other day that said, I work hard so my plants can live a better life. And that's really true. And maybe it's just because it's the summer season and this is like really what I'm doing outside of work right now is caring for my plants. That's a big one. I also really like to walk. I walk really regularly. I have been reading a book recently that's been connecting the idea of being an artist with being a monk and how oftentimes the slow pace of the life of a monk allows the individual and the monk is not necessarily from one faith tradition or another, but, or one gender or another, but allows 
the individual to be a participant in a life that is present and observant. And one of the things that I love about walking is that it allows me to move through space at a tempo that allows me to be present in that space. I don't like to run. I never have, even though I have done it. (laughs) But I like to walk because it allows me to observe what's happening in my neighborhood or the place where I'm, wherever it is that I'm walking. And it allows me time as my body moves for my mind to be more reflective. So walking is a big part of my daily life. And I also really like to sing karaoke. I don't do that every day, but I like to sing and I like to play games. I'm not a sports person necessarily, but I have recently become quite a huge fan of the English Premier League soccer. So maybe I could say that that is a new hobby for me. (laughs) I, I also joke that in my family line, the women get hit with a midlife sports fan bug. It was my grandma, my mom, and now me. I never followed sports very much at all. Like I thought it was kind of dumb. No offense to those millions of people in the world who love sports. And somehow in my midlife, I just really got bit by the bug. And now I found my way into English Premier League soccer. And now I'm really big sports fan in terms of the world of soccer. <laughs> so, I don't know. So who's your favorite team? Manchester City, they had a really great season last year. So it was really easy to be a fan of them. They played really great. They have really strong players. They have a wonderful manager. So I know that there's a whole lot about the world of English Premier League sports that I don't know. I realize that. And yet from this side of the pond watching it, I'm like removed from maybe some of the other cultural phenomena around the league that is more apparent if you are a resident of that community. It's just now dawning on me. The reason I like it so much is I feel like it is another connection point to the rest of the world. Like I have not lost my sense of wanderlust and soccer is such a world sport and to follow and to know the players, the players who play in the Premier League are from all over the world. So as I get to know the players and follow them into their national teams too, with the World Cup that was just last winter, I feel like I am maintaining connection with other parts of the world. I think that's actually what I really like about it right now. (laughs) Have fun. (laughs) So do you think any of your other crafts or your hobbies show up in your quilting? I think I would like my gardening to show up more in my quilts. It doesn't yet. I think my experience working with paper craft often does because the way that I approach quilting is very intuitive. And that's often how I've done paper craft. Also like collage, I've done a lot of work with collage and I approach my work with quilting very similarly. I usually don't have a great plan. I don't have a end. Maybe I have some sort of end goal in mind, but I I do a little bit, see how it looks, do a little more, see how it looks, cut it up, flip it upside down, see how it looks. And so I think that's probably the strongest connection 
point between quilting for me and other craft. So how did you start quilting or who introduced you to quilting? The first thing that I can remember about quilting was working on a quilt with my mom. And she made each of us a quilt when we were kids and we hand quilted them with her. So my dad made a quilt frame that could be like lowered from the ceiling. It was like on pulleys. And then we would lower it down and we would sit and she taught me how to sew and quilt by hand on that big frame. I think for her, it was really kind of a utilitarian need that each of us needed a bed covering. And she's like, I can make that. I could do that. And then she taught us how to do it. And so we would sit and work together. And sometimes friends would come over and work on it. And I have three sisters. And so she made a quilt for each of us. So over the course of those years, I have no real sense of like how long it took us to do all of that. But that was my first exposure to quilting. And I do remember that I got to pick out the fabrics for the quilt that was on my bed, which I liked. And I shared a room with my sister. And so we had to work it out. We had kind of coordinating fabrics so that they looked somewhat like they went together in the same room. And I'm pretty sure it was done in a log cabin pattern. But those are the things that I remember about like my first exposure to quilting. And it was really about making it. I'm sure I used a quilt before. But maybe I just didn't recognize or didn't have the name for the object that it was. Yeah, so many times we're just so used to that was normal in our lives that it doesn't stand out. I'm laughing because my follow-up question was going to be, did you get to pick the colors? So I'm glad you said you got to pick the fabric. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure that quilt is somewhere. I actually wonder where it is. It's probably in a trunk at my mom's and dad's house. I haven't seen it in a while, but I'm sure it's still around. It wouldn't have gone far. It will be fun when you find it. Yes. Well, whether it's a quilt you made or that someone else made, do you have a favorite quilt? Yes, I think I do. It is a hard question to answer. I'm sure some of your other guests have also said the same thing. Each one is special. It doesn't really matter if it was like a quote unquote success or not. Each one is really special. But the one that comes to mind when you ask the question is a quilt that my family made for me when I lived in Korea. And they made it and sent it to me as a surprise. I had been living over there for a couple years and they collaborated. They picked a couple colors and they each made a piece of it and then sewed it together then quilted it. And one of my sisters quilted in these like leaf patterns by hand. And some of it was quilted by machine. And it's really funky and wonky, but it has my favorite color, which is orange in it. And I just love that it was made for me as a gift and it was big enough to go on my bed. And it took a long time to get to me. I don't know how, what happened to it. But I kept getting these emails from varying members of my family saying, have you gotten a package from us yet? Like, no. Like, have you gotten a package from us yet? Like, no. I was like, this must be a really important package. What are you sending me? And it took inordinately long time to come to me. 
And then I opened it and I realized why everyone was very concerned about whether or not it had arrived or not. And yeah, I would say that is probably my favorite quilt. I still use it. I still have it as a throw on the end of my bed. Now it's probably almost 15 years later. I still am using it. And it's really special to me because it was a collaborative piece that was made by the women in my family and, and sent to me in a place where I was far from them. So it has a lot of meaning to me, not just as an object, but by like what it communicated to me when I was away. Well, I am so thankful for you that it made it. Me too. Well, as modern quilters, we get to use a lot of cool tools. Do you have a tool that you're really happy with? My favorite tool probably is my walking foot. I use it for everything not just for quilting. I use it when I'm sewing garments, unless it's like a very small space I need to be sewing in. I use it for always for piecing. I just find that I have so much more accuracy with it. So that absolutely is my most used and favorite tool that I have access to. When I bought the foot, I was like, this is so much money. Oh my goodness. You know, it was like kind of a big investment for me. I felt the same way about my sewing machine. And now I'm like worth every cent, every cent. During the process, do you like each step along the way or do you like a particular step of the quilting process? My favorite is the piecing. The rest of it, I can manage. I don't dislike it, but definitely the piecing is my favorite. And usually by the time I get to the binding I'm really over it. And the binding takes a lot longer than I think it's going to every single time. So that probably is my least favorite. Although a nicely done binding is sort of like chef's kiss to the project. So I do really like it when it looks good. But that's probably my least favorite. And depending on the way that I quilt it, whether or not I'm doing it by hand or by machine, I don't know. Sometimes I like really love the like mindlessness of the machine quilting because I don't have a long arm quilter. So if I'm doing it by machine, I'm doing it on my home machine and I have a nice table, but usually it's pretty simplified like quilting pattern. So it just becomes very meditative and mindless. So sometimes that part can be really nice. But yes, definitely my favorite, if I had to say my favorite, is the piecing. What would you say is the most common answer to that question? It's interesting. I think most people like the designing and piecing, but the long armors, they they like the quilting. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's funny. It seems like people either love the binding or hate the binding. And there's (laughs) rarely a middle ground. Yeah. (laughs) On the most recent piece that I just finished, I didn't actually add a binding. I just folded over the back to make a binding. And that was the first time, maybe second time I've ever done it. I wouldn't use it for everything moving forward, but it was so much simpler than attaching a bias binding and sewing it on. It really was a much faster process. I was like, oh, okay, note to self plan for this again. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. 
share your worst quilting experience? If I had to answer this question, it's not because it was a really bad experience, but because of my time management. I did a collection of quilts the last year that I lived in Korea. So I was having an exhibition of my work and I had been planning it for a while, but I just did not give myself a long enough runway to do all of the work. I dyed all the fabric for the quilts. And I also dyed the thread that I was going to be using to quilt it by hand so that I had coordinating colors to work with. And I did a series of quilts that were all about stacking things because in my experience, my life in Korea, that lots of things were tall or deep because the land area of the country was quite small, but so many people that building happens up and down. So it was all about vertical lines. And then I quilted it all with circles because I wanted to represent the sort of symbiotic way in which I was feeling connected to this world. So it was this like contrast between vertical, stacked, rectangles, and circles. And I love the work that I was able to make. But I definitely did not give myself enough time to finish the work and prepare it for exhibition. So it was a, unfortunately like a really poorly installed exhibition. It was fine. It was okay. It just wasn't great. And it was not because the quilt process itself was so hard, but because I just ran out of time to do it. So it was very stressful. And I was wrapping up my life in Korea. I knew I was going to be leaving later on in the year. And I really wanted it to be a nice exhibition of my work. And it was not as nice as it could have been. Managing expectations is hard sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. And I do want to say there were so many wonderful things that happened in that sort of stressful time, like friends who stepped in to help me and made things happen that I never could have on my own. But it was a stressful situation. And I think you're exactly right that my expectations were very high. My hopes for what I was going to share were really high. And it was good. And I still expected better of myself. I think a lot of people are going to relate to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we all have the same amount of time and there are so many things we could do with our time. What makes you come back to quilting? It seems to me that quilts draw me. I just find myself being drawn back to them. And I had a friend who visited my studio yesterday. And the last few years, I've been making a lot of collages with fabric, very abstracted. And relatively recently, I just have migrated back into making and wanting to make quilts again. And so she asked me a really similar question, like, do you see yourself changing how you're working? Do you think you want to go back to making more quilts again, away from some of these fabric collages that have raw edges? They're pieced also, but they're all raw edged and they're like layered rather than connected side by side, like a quilt faces. I was like, yes. I mean, I just am being drawn back to it. I think because the language of the quilt is so recognizable. It's something like we mentioned in our conversation earlier, like it's like an object that we just all have reference for, even if we don't 
know that it's a quilt or we don't know the language to call it a quilt. We have been wrapped in warm fabrics our whole lives. And I just keep getting drawn back to that. I really also like the way that the quilt is a recognizable object. It uses textiles and textiles are, besides just being the object of the quilt, textiles themselves are materials that carry language. We have references, we see a a plaid fabric and we think, oh, flannel shirt, I know this, I've worn this before, or my dad wore this, or my best friend had a flannel shirt that was that color. We immediately find ourselves in the middle of it. We are able to connect our own stories when we see fabrics or we see something that's shiny and we're like, oh, that looks like that's the same color as the dress that I wore when I was in my junior prom. We make these connections with fabrics all the time. And a quilt is a way to like combine fabric. So we combine our stories, we combine elements of material. And it's more than just like color. When I was painting more, you know, thinking about like texture and the way colors blend. And as a painter, thinking about the way that I was creating something on a surface and I was creating something that was exclusively to be engaged with your eyes or my eyes or somebody's eyes. And a quilt is something that's meant and can be engaged with your eyes, but also with your whole body. And there's just something that is so relatable about that. And I just keep coming back to it. I like the way that a quilt can be used in various ways. It can take different forms based on the way a body is underneath it or beside it or over it. It doesn't just have to be flat like other art forms. And it also doesn't just have to be sculptural like other art forms. It has the capacity to be both, both a two-dimensional and three-dimensional object. Yeah, there's so many things that I could say about why I keep getting drawn back into this world of quilts. That's great. I love this artist's perspective that even though I make quilts, I don't quite have that same perspective. And that helps me. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, quilt makers are artists. I don't know a lot of people in my day-to-day life that make quilts. I'm growing that community here in Denver. But I often find myself saying, absolutely, you are an artist. If you make something with your hands, if you set an intention and you create something in the world that didn't exist before, you are a creator. You are an artist. That word often, though, carries like a lot of expectations. My students would say, I'm not an artist because an artist sort of feels like one particular box or circle that you need to, you know, we all have that like one crazy artist friend where you're like, well, I'm not crazy like them or whatever it is that you find that you're saying But yeah, to create is to be an artist. So I want to encourage you to try that on as a title because you are already. Okay, I'll agree to there's different degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on that. You are right. As with most things, there is a spectrum rather than just a either or in terms of how we see ourselves, what we do, our capacity for whatever it is that we are doing. It's never just either or. It's always something or more something or less something. Yeah. <laughs> So who do you usually make your quilts for? 
When I am making my quilts as art pieces, I am thinking about a more general audience. Usually someone, I'm hoping, I don't know yet, but someone who finds the work that I'm doing relatable and visually interesting enough that they want to have it in their space. But I also do make quilts for people I know and love. And most everyone in my life has some sort of quilted object that I have made. Most recently, I made my mom a quilted vest. I used a fabric on the front that was a color I knew she would wear. And then on the inside, I used a tablecloth that was her mother's as a way of just bringing my grandma back into her life. She gets to wear a vest that has an element that was used by her mom. Yet when my grandma passed, I inherited a lot of her textiles. Most of them are tablecloths. And everyone's like, who could use grandma's textiles? Oh, Karin. Yep, she'll take them. And I was like, yes, absolutely, I'll take them. So I have hopes that in the future, I'll be able to put them into different people's hands within our family through different objects. But yeah, one of my cousins, we made a collaborative family quilt for her years ago. And that was really fun. Yeah, most everybody in my life has some sort of quilts. And I have a niece and nephew who get a lot of hand-sewn clothes. And they'll probably get a quilt at some point, too. So you're the fun aunt. I have aspirations of being a fun aunt, yes. (laughs) So what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm working on... Another small quilt for the wall that is intuitively pieced and it's kind of grays and maroons and navy. And it's similar to some of the ones that I've made recently that, again, are very intuitively pieced. But this one, as I was working, I chose the colors based on what I had in my scrap bin because I That is something, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but one of the things I like about making quilts is it allows me to use all of the materials that I have. Nothing is ever like waste. It's always going to be put into something else. So I gathered these fabrics and I started making and sewing. I mean, I wasn't really sure what I was making, but I just started sewing strips together. And I had some oddly shaped pieces because they were left over from some garments. And throughout the sort of evolution of this process, I I was really drawn to this contrast of straight shapes versus curved shapes. And I started seeing as I was doing more and more of these and putting them up on my design wall, it looked like a hand holding something. And then it looked like two hands holding something. And then I was like, oh, this, this, there was just visuals again and again and again that speak to this concept of the hard things can be held in soft hands. And I think about oftentimes, like we use our hands as humans to do all kinds of things. And there's like a lot of visual imagery that I know from my faith tradition that is like, God holds all of humanity in his hands. And his hands were hands that built things. And his hands were things that carried things, you know, like his hands were part of who he was on earth too. And so it's not visually obvious and it's not didactic, but that's what I was thinking about as I was making this piece. It's just like 
the hard, straight, angular things being held in the soft curve of someone's hands. And most of my work is very kind of abstract. It does not use imagery that is immediately recognizable. But conceptually, I like to always be thinking about why I'm doing something. And and in this case, it sort of evolved as I was working that the best things I think do that way. That way they like evolve from a spark of an idea. And then as I work more, I'm like, oh, that's what this is all about. And so I'm currently in a place where I have the sandwich. I have the face done and I put it together the sandwich and I'm trying to think about how I want to quilt it because there are so many small pieces in this one. And I want to sort of draw out that contrast between the curved shape that I am associating with open hands and then the like angular hard pieces that I am sort of associating with the fragmented reality sometimes of life and the hard bits about being a human. And so I really want to draw out that contrast. I'm in a place where I'm trying to make a decision about how to quilt it. And I think in the way that I quilt it, that's going to make that more obvious. So I'm playing around with maybe using different colors for different shapes rather than quilt lines that follow the shapes of the pieced pattern. I think it needs to have like an all over sort of quilted pattern. So I'm thinking of maybe just drawing lines like curved lines and having one half of the quilt be like a large arc. And then the other half of the quilt be quilted with strong, sharp lines. But that's where I am right now. That's where I am in like, I need to make the next decision so that I can move forward. And I'm percolating on that right now. And I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to solve it, but I will solve it. It's fun to take the time to think about that. And then when it hits you, it's like, oh, yes. That will be it. Yes. Sometimes it's hard for me to be patient for that. But I do know from experience that being stuck on something, oftentimes giving it a little bit of space is the best way to resolve it rather than like trying to push through to finish it quickly or just get it done. It's been hanging up on my wall for a bit now, maybe a couple of weeks. And I just yesterday had the idea about doing a larger quilted arc. It's like, oh, it took me a while to get there. I think that's probably the direction I'm going to go. But had I started quilting it right after I finished piecing it, I wouldn't have gotten to that resolution. Yeah. Can you describe your sewing space? I work in a studio space that is right above a bridal store and wine bar. So I have a sewing studio that is part of a collection of other artist studios. There's 11 of us up here on the second floor. And there's a few painters. There's a graphic designer. There is a metalsmith who works up here. And then there's me who works mostly with fabrics and sewing. I have all of my fabrics sorted by color. And I really like to see a good rainbow assortment of things. Most of my fabrics are out on a shelf so that I can see them. And I have all my threads sorted by rainbow. 
I have a work table in the middle of my studio that's long and rectangular that I use as a cutting table and a working table. And then I have a another small table that I use with my sewing machine and my serger. My favorite part of my studio is my design wall. I have flannel wrapped around foam core and then nailed into the wall. That's my favorite space. The foam core, it's just deep enough that I can pin into it if I need to, so I can hang heavier things, but also the flannel keeps things up so that I can like see it. I have been in this studio complex for quite a while. And about a year ago, I moved into this space and this space is larger than my last one. And I doubled my space of my design wall and it was just glorious. That's my favorite thing about being in this bigger space is a bigger wall space that I can use to visualize what I am making. It's allowing me to work bigger and just have more things up on the wall that are in process. Karen, thank you so much for sending a picture ahead of time. That's going to be the feature picture for your episode and your quilt wander. It's so pretty. And I was hoping that you could tell me how it came about. Yeah, this piece I started working on during a workshop, actually. Part of this workshop, we were moving quickly. That was sort of the theme of the workshop was to quickly piece things together. And I was using blue and white fabrics, which is sort of my go-to color palette or something that I sort of slide back into pretty regularly, partly because I have a lot of blue fabric scraps to work from because I have made myself a lot of blue clothing. So I have a lot of that to work with. And I just love that contrast of the blue and white. It's high contrast, but it's not so stark as like black and white. So I just like the sort of coolness of the blues. And so I did a bunch of work in the workshop just putting together some small blocks. I'll call them blocks because they're not necessarily square, but you know what I mean? Like uh, I'd sewn pieces of fabric together. And then I spent the rest of the day after the workshop just playing around with those pieces up on my wall. And as I was organizing them, I just started seeing a lot of birds come through like I kept saying oh that looks like a bird oh that looks like a bird oh that looks like a bird which I hesitate to do as an abstract artist because I don't necessarily want to be making things that are recognizable as objects but I also think that it is our human nature to want to understand what we see so it's very easy to look at something just like you look at a cloud and you are able to like picture something you're like oh that looks like a hippopotamus or you look at something that is an abstract shape or abstract form and your mind just wants to make sense of it and name it so I started seeing these birds and these like bird bills and these bird heads and I was like oh that's kind of cool one of the things that's happening to me as I get older too is I'm starting to pay attention to birds I feel like that is something that I've evolved into now I'm watching the birds as I'm working in the garden, you know, just I'm more aware of birds than I used to be. So that makes sense that I was recognizing them. So I was just thinking about like the ways in which birds migrate and they fly and they travel and 
goes back to what I was saying before, where I just always am thinking about the rest of the world. What haven't I seen yet? Where do I need to go? And so I'm just thinking about that. And I follow somebody on Instagram, a poet. Her name is Morgan Harper Nichols. She's quite Instagram famous. And she does these wonderful poems and writings as well as visual art. She posted this poem that was about wandering. The visuals were also blue, really similar to the colors of my quilts. And the text was something about how it might look like I'm wandering, but really I'm not. I'm just on a winding path. And I've never been out of where I needed to be, even though it looked like I was wandering. That's way less eloquent than her words, but it really resonated with me. And I'd already been thinking about the birds and the colors connected. And so one of the things that I think is really important too, is that sort of, even as I intuit and make things visually, that intuitive connection to that, like, oh, these things were sort of adding up to be what I wanted to do. And I didn't set out with this intention, but over time, this is just how it added up. So I used some of the text from her poem and embroidered it as part of the quilting on my piece. So from afar, you see the composition, but if you're up close, you can read the text that's also been embroidered on the piece. And I modified it a little bit because I think one of the things that I always come back to as a creator is that I want to also represent my creator in the process. And so the reassurance that I've always had is that even though I have sort of wandered to many places in my life and had sort of a circular path through the different things that I have done, I have never been apart from God's love. And he has always been close and near. And I think that's one of the things that a quilt reminds me of is like the closeness and the love of someone else is represented through a quilt. And so I changed the text of her poem a little bit to reflect that, but that's an element of the piece itself. How cool that you were able to put the words onto your quilt and tie it all together. That is really neat. It reminded me somewhat of the G's Ben quilts I've seen. Oh, yeah. And the way you were talking about the different shapes and putting them together. When I had the opportunity to interview Mary Letha Petway, she said that she would cut, 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 cut until God told her to stop cutting. And then she would sew, 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 sew. So <laughs> putting those pieces together. And that made me think of it again as you were talking about you would put pieces together and then look at it and not necessarily have the whole plan planned out ahead of time. It sounded very similar to what Mary Letha said she did. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember the first time that I saw the Jews Benz quilts and I was just, I don't even know how to describe what it was because I had been exposed to quilts that were very organized, that followed prescribed paths of like, this is how you make this block. And then this is how you measure. And then this is how you do this block. And that's how I had learned to sew, to follow patterns, where the sewing itself was just the mechanics of following the pattern. 
And the first time that I saw the Jeez Benz quilts, I thought, now this is something. Like these are fine art pieces. I can see what the artist did here. And yes, they use the same tools that I know how to use, but they made it their own way rather than following somebody else's pattern. And that is what I want to do. They do do classes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah. Well, maybe when I'm done with this natural dye class, the next one that I'll do is I can go sit with them and work with them and learn from them. That would be fun. Next year. Yeah. Can you share a quilting tip? I think what I would say to somebody else who is working in quilting is trust your eye more than your ruler. Look and see what your eye tells you and use that. Yes, a ruler is helpful and important and valuable, but trust your eye to help you make decisions more than your measuring device. Interesting. Because I'm thinking about something I was just working on last week. And like the way that looked, I think I will make a little tuck here. Do what I want with it. Yeah. Great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Karen, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I so enjoyed hearing your story and visiting with you. Thank you, Paula. It really has been an honor to talk to you today and to share my story. It's really a nice opportunity that you've given me today. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.